Amen. It's exciting to just see the progress. We just want to welcome all of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are meeting here in person at Central Campus, along with those of you meeting together at one of our other campuses. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 14, where we will continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're a parent of school-aged children, imagine being told by your doctor that you have an illness that will take your life in about a year. In other words, imagine having only one year left with your children. Now, I'm sure you would want to spend as much time as possible with them, but what truths, what values would you want to pass on to them this coming year that would serve them well going forward? How would you want to equip them to carry on without you, to not only survive, but to actually thrive in life? Now, I know it's a terrible scenario that I'm asking you to imagine, but this was the situation that Jesus was facing with his disciples or his spiritual children, uh, as it were, here in Matthew 14. When Jesus heard that his cousin John the Baptist had been killed by King Herod, he went off by himself to a solitary place. And we aren't told why Jesus retreated, but we do know that after this time, he devoted less time teaching and ministering to the crowds and a lot more time equipping and preparing his disciples to carry on the mission that his heavenly father had called him to. And he probably focused more time on his disciples because he knew that in a year, he would be facing the cross. And so, as we will see in our study today, Jesus intentionally began to focus on developing his disciples' faith, one of the most important things that they would need going forward. And I say that because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In the same way that you parents want your children to grow up physically, emotionally, mentally, in their language and motor skills, and would be concerned if they stop growing in these areas, so God wants us to grow up spiritually, and particularly in our faith and our trust in him. He wants us to know that he is as real as I'm standing here. And he also wants us to seek him and to know his character and to trust him and to believe him. Unless our heart and our lives are moving in that direction, unless our faith in him is growing, we won't be pleasing him. Now, faith is not something that you're born with. Faith is something that you learn. It is something that has to be developed. Faith in some ways is like a muscle. It grows stronger only if you exercise it. Most of us would prefer that there would be an easier way to keep our body fit. But the reality is, when it comes to muscle growth, 
There's no gain without some pain. The same is true in the area of our spiritual growth. Most of us, if given a choice, would be content to live a safe, comfortable lifestyle. But God loves us too much to leave us there because he knows that true satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, and peace in life can only come through a vibrant relationship with him and through experiencing the faith-filled adventures that he's ordained for us. And so God often challenges us to move out of our comfort zone and at times even forces us to leave our comfort zone in an attempt to grow our faith in him. Which brings us to our scripture lesson today, beginning in verse 13 of chapter uh, of Matthew 14, in which we see Jesus providing at least three opportunities for his disciples to grow in their faith. Three ways, by the way, that God also uses to grow our faith today. First of all, God seeks to grow our faith by multiplying what we give to him. We see Jesus using this faith-building opportunity in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Our scripture passage tells us that when Jesus returned from his private retreat, a large crowd was waiting for him. There were about 5,000 men in that crowd, not counting women and children, which means there likely would have been somewhere between 10 to 15,000 people uh, in that crowd that day. Verse 14 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, and he began to teach and minister to them and heal their sick. This went on for many hours until late afternoon, at which point the disciples approached him and said something like, uh, Jesus, um, we got a problem. It's getting late, and we're getting hungry. And if we're getting hungry, that means all these people are getting hungry, and we're miles away from a place that they can find food. And so we suggest that you send them on their way so that they can be fed and watered. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus said next in verse 16. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, I can envision doubting Thomas rolling his eyes at this moment and saying something like, you're not serious, Jesus. I mean, we're miles away from any fast food joints. I mean, and I can just imagine, you know, uh, Judas chirping in at this point saying, that's right. And even if we order pizza, the cheapest alternative, we'd have to get a loan from the bank in order to pay for it all. But seriously, do you see what Jesus was doing here? He was seeking to build their faith by inviting them into a faith-building adventure that was way over their heads way beyond their ability to accomplish, something they could never pull off without God's help. Even though he knew that they did not have the means to feed the crowd, he wanted them to feel the magnitude of the need and the human impossibility of meeting that need, and despite their feelings of doubt, to step out and to trust him to provide what was needed. 
And so even though they undoubtedly felt like they were on an, an impossible mission, they stepped out anyways and they investigated how much food the crowd had with them, which turned out to be a measly five small loaves and two fish or enough lunch for two. Well, Jesus told them to give, the boys, give him the boys lunch. And in verse 19, we read, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So let me ask you, if you had just experienced what the disciples experienced that day, would your faith have grown? I know that my faith would have grown, and I'm sure the disciples' faith in Jesus went to another level as well. But let's not miss the, most, the, the important faith lesson coming out of this story, which is this. If Jesus calls you to do something and you think you don't have what it takes, you don't have the resources, you don't have the talent, you don't have the intellect, don't throw your hands up in despair. No, step out and give Jesus what you have. You may be full of doubt. You may feel totally inadequate. You may feel overcome by a fear of failure. You may have a past filled with regrets and feel so unworthy. You may have a heart that has been broken too many times. But if you will take a small step of faith and give him what you can do and trust him to do what you can't do, he will bless it, he will multiply it, and he will use it to accomplish more than you can imagine. Because in his kingdom, little becomes much when you place it in the master's hands. You know, Christian apologist Dr. William Craig, he tells how as a student, he was asking the big eternal questions of life and finding no satisfying answers. He was at a point of deep despair when one day while attending a lecture, he happened to sit behind a, a young woman who just radiated joy. He had a brief conversation with her following the class and she told him that she knew Jesus and, and what Jesus meant to her and that Jesus loved him too. Craig says her joy and her brief testimony of her love for Jesus not only captivated his attention but it lit a fire in him to know more about this Jesus that she spoke about. All she did was to let Jesus shine through her and to share a little word of what he meant to her. Little did she know that her story and her simple faith in Jesus would ultimately be used of God to lead William to put his trust in Jesus and who God in turn would use to introduce hundreds of thousands of others to Jesus 
in return. Little becomes much when we place it in the master's hands. That's one way that God seeks to grow our faith. He takes whatever we give him in faith and he multiplies it to accomplish his kingdom purposes. Furthermore, God grows our faith by allowing storms in our lives. Sometimes God seeks to grow our faith in him not just by encouraging us or challenging us to, to leave our comfort zone, but by forcing us out of our comfort zones through some kind of storm or hardship. And we see this played out in the second story that Matthew records here. In verse 22, it says this, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and to go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now notice it says Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and he did so immediately. Now Matthew doesn't tell us why uh, there was this great sense of urgency in Jesus, but the apostle John does in John 6 verse 15. John tells us that after Jesus miraculously fed the large crowd, they began clamoring to make him king. They were blown away by his authoritative teaching, um, by his miracles. And from their perspective, having a king who had the power to provide a permanent free lunch, well, that was an added bonus. That sealed the deal. They wanted him to be king. Now, Jesus sensed what the crowd was up to, and he knew that the time for this wasn't now. That would happen on Palm Sunday. And so he determined to squelch this grassroots movement and to get his disciples out of there um, as quick as possible before they got caught up in the euphoria that was building in the crowd. Well, after sending his disciples off, Jesus dismissed the crowd and then he went up on a mountainside and he talked with his heavenly father long into the night. In the meantime, the disciples encountered a storm with a strong headwind that prevented them from reaching their destination. They'd been rowing hard for most of the night. They were totally exhausted, and for all of their efforts, were only about halfway across the lake, maybe three or four miles. It's dark, it's cold, it's miserable out. And Matthew describes what happens next. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now here's the thing. The disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do when they got hit by that storm. Some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. And you're asking the Lord, why this financial setback? Lord, why this accident? Why this loss of relationship? Why this death? Why this illness? Well, there are many reasons, of course, and we won't know some of them until we get to glory. 
But sometimes, like King David, we face storms of our own making because we've made unwise, ungodly decisions that are now wreaking havoc in our lives. Sometimes God allows storms in our lives because we've been ignoring or we've been disobeying his call in our lives the way that Jonah did when he refused to go to Nineveh and warn them of coming judgment and of the need to repent. And because Jonah was ignoring God, was disobeying God, he and the crew of the ship that he was on trying to escape from God, they faced a life-threatening storm at sea. Now, because some storms that we face are the product of our own making, when we face hardships and difficulties in life, our tendency is to immediately assume it's because we're doing something wrong or because we're not doing something we should be doing. However, as I pointed out a moment ago, that was not the case in this particular storm in the life of the disciples. They were in the boat that Jesus told them to get into. They were rowing toward the place that he told them to go to. Clearly, Jesus had another reason for allowing the disciples to be hit with a storm. And I believe the reason was to grow their faith in him through this storm by accomplishing two things in their lives. First, I believe he allowed them to experience this major storm in order to get their attention. You know, God often allows storms to come our way so that we will hear his voice in a way we never would hear him when things are calm. Let's be honest. When things are going well, we can go for days without dialing into God. And it can take us even longer than that to actually sit down and be still and really hear what he's saying to us. But when the storms are raging and we're exhausted and we're frightened, our hearts and our ears are far more attuned to God. And Jesus didn't want his disciples to miss what was about to happen and what he was about to say to them. Furthermore, I believe that Jesus allowed them to experience the storm so that they would come to the end of themselves and recognize their total need of him. In the same way that he sought to build their faith in him by letting them process and feel how impossible it was for them to feed those 10,000 plus people that day, so I believe he sought to build their faith in him by letting the storm bring them to a place, an end to themselves, and to recognize their total need to trust him and him alone. And so when Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. I mean, they were really ready to hear what he was saying. And having come to the end of their own strength and the end of their own human solutions, they were also ready to trust him and to cast all their fears 
and their cares upon him. And so, friend, when you go through a storm, don't always assume that it's because you've done something wrong or, or that you're doing something wrong. Sometimes it's because God wants to grow your faith by giving you a picture of who he really is that you never knew or understood before. Sometimes it's because he wants to grow your faith by meeting you in that storm and walking with you through that storm or to show his power to calm that storm or to empower you to endure that storm. So don't focus. I hear a few amens out there. That's good. That's great. So don't focus on the storm, on the why of the storm and the strength of the storm. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and the good thing that he's wanting to accomplish in your life. You know, I, as you know, I have faced many life-threatening storms in my life. And even though I would much rather not have gone through them, I can honestly say that God used every storm to take my faith in him and my relationship with him to another level. And for that, I am immensely grateful because, you know, when you look at it from an eternal point of view, when it's all said and done, nothing is going to matter more to me than my friendship with Jesus. Sometimes God grows our faith by allowing storms in our lives. And then thirdly, God grows our faith by inviting us to get out of the boat. Look at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come to me, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, I don't think that Jesus said that in a condescending way to Peter. I think Jesus said, you know, essentially said something like, you know, Peter, way to go. Way to go to exercise your faith. But why did you take your eyes off me? Now notice also that it was Peter's idea to get out of the boat. This was not something that Jesus initiated. After seeing Jesus feed 10,000 plus people with the boys' lunch and then seeing him walk on water, I believe that Peter's faith in Jesus was growing. And then he makes a request that just must have been such a blessing for Jesus to hear. He asks to come to Jesus. I say it must have blessed Jesus to have Peter ask this. Because I remind you again of what Hebrews 11:6 6 says. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and 
that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Peter was earnestly seeking to draw close to Jesus and to encounter him. You know, nothing pleases our Lord more than when we, like Peter, voluntarily long to be close to him, to seek him, even when it means stepping out of our comfort zone. And so Jesus invites him to come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on water. He trusts Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. Hold him up out of the water. And for just a few moments, it's just Jesus and Peter. Can you imagine? But then Peter's attention is diverted from Jesus to the wind and the waves, his circumstances. Fear overtakes him, and he starts to sink. Thankfully, Peter was humble enough to cry out for help, and Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. In other words, Jesus didn't abandon Peter. Now, you know, often those who teach on this event, they focus on the fact that Peter failed. But did Peter really fail? Well, in one way he did. He let his circumstances take his eyes off Jesus, and as a result, he began to sink. However, one of my favorite authors says, but there were 11 bigger failures in the boat. They failed privately. They failed quietly. Their failure was safe. It was unnoticed. It was uncriticized. Yes, only Peter experienced the dreaded shame of public failure. But only Peter knew the glory of walking on water. Only Peter experienced what it meant to wholly trust Jesus in that moment. Only Peter experienced that connection and that shared moment with Jesus. And only Peter knew in a way that the others never would that when he sank, Jesus would be there and that Jesus is wholly adequate to save. The other 11 never experienced that because they never got out of the boat. So what does it mean to get out of the boat? Well, fundamentally, getting out of the boat means saying no to my fleshly desires and my idols. Saying no to the survival of me, my agenda, my, uh, my easy life, my comfort. And instead saying yes to Jesus, choosing to put my faith in Jesus and to follow him. You see, what pleases God is a faith that does not just believe in him, but a faith that believes him. Please note the difference. For example, I believe in Satan, but I do not believe him. He's a liar, and I don't trust him. And you see, this is the issue that the Israelites faced when they were about to enter the promised land. They didn't believe God. 
God sent 12 men to explore the land of Canaan. And when they returned, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, gave a thumbs up, while the other 10 gave a thumbs down. And as a result, the people believed the 10. Fear gripped them. And instead of believing God and his promises to them and move forward in faith, they turned back in fear. And we read in Numbers 14, 11, that God was angered by their lack of faith in him and said, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Nothing insults our Lord more than when we choose comfort and safety and the good life over obedience to his call. You see, the boat may be safe and comfortable, but God has so much more in mind for us than staying in our comfy boats with our caps on backwards, drinking pina coladas, and playing video games and watching Netflix the rest of our lives. He wants us to grow in our faith, to be his representatives in the world, and to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And so he will rock our boats and challenge us to get out of the boat. Many of you are having your boat rocked right now. God's calling some of you to get out of your comfy boat and to exercise a whole new level of generosity with the time you have, with the abilities you have, and the finances you have. God's calling others of you to step out and lead in some way, to lead an alpha group, to lead a small group of youth, to, to lead a, a community group. And, and I know it's, COVID is making that difficult, but you know, we've got Zoom, so we can still lead. God's calling others of you to step out and develop a relationship with your neighbor or someone at work, to pray for them and, and to believe, that, believe God that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ, perhaps even by exercising a little faith and writing their names right here on the, on the stage floor. God is calling some of you to do the really tough thing and just to share a little bit of your story and the hope that you have within. The possibilities are endless of what God may be challenging you to do. God says, I don't want you wasting your life away, living for yourself and for living for lesser things, wandering around the desert the way the unfaithful Israelites did. No, I want you to experience the high adventure of joining me in investing your life in that which is going to outlast you that which will matter forever. He says, nothing pleases me more. Nothing will deepen your relationship with me more. Nothing will enrich your life and your relationships more than to trust me and get out of the boat. Now, when you contemplate stepping out of the boat, you're going to experience fear. Please understand that. Does that mean you don't have any faith? Well, not necessarily. You can have fear and faith at the same time. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is moving ahead in spite of the fear. 
Psalm 56, 3 says, when I am afraid, I will put my confidence in God. Living in faith is feeling the fear, but obeying the Lord anyways, because your confidence is in him. Some of you may think because you have a fear of failure, for example, that you cannot follow Christ, that your faith is inadequate. But that's just not true. If you choose growth, if you choose to step out of the boat, you choose fear. Every time you walk out on a limb, every time you push into a new uh, land of adventure, a new opportunity, and you take a risk of obedience, you will experience fear. I mean, a lot of people think that when I come up here to, to teach and preach, that, that this is just a piece of cake. I mean, after all these years, it's a piece of cake. Every time I come up here, there's a level of fear inside of me that I have to surrender to God. You know, I still remember, I was in my early 30s. I think I was 31, maybe 32. When the leadership of Center Street asked me to be senior pastor of this church, I was terrified. I felt so inadequate. And my biggest fear was the fear of failure. A fear of what people important to me would think if they saw me fail. And so for me, getting out of the boat at that time was about surrendering to God this haunting need to be seen as successful. And instead of, and, and, and instead, to find my identity in who God says I am, not in what other people say I am or say about me. And finding my value in just being faithful and obedient to God and leaving the results to him. And so expect the fear of failure. And when it hits you, remember this. The only time fear and doubt are serious problems is when they prevent you from being and doing what God calls you to be and to do. When they convince you to stay in the boat and to not live in total dependence on Jesus Christ. A faith that pleases God is a faith like the two spies Joshua and Caleb have. I mean, do you think they didn't experience fear when they went into that land and they saw those giants and the military strength of those people? You don't think they had any fears? Do you think they forgot to wear their contact lenses when they spied out that land? Absolutely not. Faith is not pretending or ignoring reality. True faith fakes, uh, sorry, faces the facts, even if those facts cause us to fear. Joshua and Caleb didn't ignore the problem. But please note this they didn't dwell on the problem either, the way that the other 10 spies did, the way the children of Israel did. No, instead of being fixated on the problem, they chose to focus their attention on the problem solver. They didn't just see the giants, they saw God beyond the giants. Joshua and Caleb, they didn't believe in their own ability to resolve things. No, they believed in God and, and his ability to do what they couldn't do. 
They didn't believe in a force. They didn't believe in a formula. No, they believed in the almighty God of the universe. Church, faith is not a positive mental attitude. Faith is not psyching yourselves up and chanting, I believe, I believe, or saying, if I just believe hard enough, I can accomplish anything. Are you kidding me? That's fantasy. That's not faith. No, true faith is not in faith in our words. It's not faith in our chanting. It's not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in faith. No, true faith is in God. The focus isn't on the faith. The focus is on the object of our faith. Think of it this way. You can have little faith in thick ice and cross the lake without drowning. On the other hand, you can have great faith in thin ice and drown. It's not the amount of faith. It's the trustworthiness of the object in which you're placing your faith in. And church, that's why Peter was able to walk on water. It wasn't because he chanted, I believe, I believe, I can do this. It wasn't because he had faith in his faith. It was because his faith was in Jesus and Jesus alone. And here's the breathtaking part. When we trust the Lord and we get out of the boat, when we hold nothing back from him, but we surrender to him our lives, our time, our talent, our resources, amazing things begin to happen. Hearts are changed. Marriages, families are restored. The lost are found. The hungry are fed and the needs of the hurting are met. Communities, cities, relationships and people are healed. And we are forever changed. Our faith grows and our experience and we experience life to the max personally and in our relationship with God and others. Imagine if Everyone who's listening to me right now were to say, Jesus, I'm yours. I want to get out of the boat. Can you imagine the kind of life-changing power of God that would be released in our city and in our land? Friends, that is why Jesus wants us to get out of the boat out of our comfort zones. Now, when you do, you will face problems. When you do, as I said a moment ago, you're going to experience fear and your faith will falter. And there will be times that you will want to go back to the safety and the comfort of the boat. But I do know this. When you fall or when you fail, and you will. Jesus will be there to pick you up. And Jesus 
will stand with you. And I also know this, when you get out of the boat in God's way and in God's time, you will experience your own little walk on water moment as you see firsthand how God can use the little that you give him in faith to make an eternal difference in our world. And in that moment, you will worship him just like the disciples did that day in the boat. And you will join them in saying, truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And in that moment, you will also understand why you can never go back to the boat or to the way your life was before you got out of the boat. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Just take a moment right now. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and ask him, Jesus, what are you, what are you saying to me right now? And what do you want me to do about it? Just take a moment to do that right now. going to close and respond to God's message today with a song that reminds us that the God who walked on water, the God who fed thousands of people, who made giants fall, who shook prison walls, the God who calmed the sea. In other words, the God who was faithful then is the same God who continues to be faithful now. Would you please stand and let's respond to him in worship right now.